With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles. The Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my first show of 2009. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. My guest today is Pat Lynch, the founder and CEO of Women's Radio on the Web. Pat's passion, commitment, and speaking up have propelled her from U.S. Senate staffer to becoming the first woman-owned advertising and marketing firm in the South to establishing the first nationally syndicated talk channel, the WR Channel. You can do it too. Pat is a true entrepreneur who knows how to implement the right fit method. Take us back to your childhood, Pat, and set the stage for who you are today. I know that you had interesting women in your life. Hi, Arlene. How are you doing? Fine, Pat. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure for me to be here and and know that we've talked in the past about what sets the stage for whatever it is that you do in life. And I, I believe, like you, that it, is, it does happen in your early life. And especially as you look back and you say, oh, yeah, that's true, that did happen. And as you suggest, I, in looking back in my own life, I was brought up in what many people consider to be the Deep South. I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. And I was born to a woman who lost her husband in the Second World War just, really nine months after I was born. And she had a mother who lost her husband in the middle of the Deep Depression. So I actually was born into a family of very strong women. And even on my father's side, who came from the north, all of the women on his side of the family were some of the strongest, brightest women that I knew as well. So, How did you, how did you like these women when you were growing up? I love them. I admired them. I I still do. I just think they're some of the best women I've ever had the privilege to be around. I I like all the qualities that I saw in them and that I learned from them. Um, even my mother. <laughs> Did you? She was a really tough lady. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that you liked your mother. Um, let me ask you: Did you, at an early age, say to yourself? I admire these women, and I want to be like them. You know, I'm not at all certain that I use those words, but certainly I was, um, I I really, really adored and appreciated these women and and the qualities that they displayed. And whether I use those words or not, I, I think that some of the things I did tell myself is, I want to do things when I grow up to make these women really proud of me. Well, that's good. If you wanted them to admire you, then obviously they set the standard for you. They definitely did. Take us a bit further into your life. At age 22, you became the press secretary for a U.S. senator 
and then a congressman. How did you pitch yourself to get these positions? Well, you know, it's funny. It was not really intentional. I had uh, attended the University of Tennessee. I'd spent two years in chemical engineering, and I was one of 15 women in a sea of 10,000 men in engineering. And so, uh, I, in fact, I think we chatted about this. I, I did several things that uh, put me in a position of doing something that other women didn't do, and I actually enjoyed it, and I didn't mind being the only woman to, to be in those situations. I, I actually almost thrived on it. And so, but I will say that it was very, very difficult being one of a very handful of women in an area where you really needed to collaborate with other people in that area, in engineering. So after the second year, I went into journalism, and I finished in journalism. My idea was that I was going to do technical writing, and I was very drawn to Atlanta, Georgia. So I actually ended up interviewing with the only woman in the U.S. who headed up a media division. And this was a woman who headed up uh, Business Week, uh, McGraw-Hill Publications. And she really wanted me to work with her. And she said, but I, I don't have budget for another person right now. She said, why don't you go to New York, work in our New York office, and as soon as I get the budget, I will pull you down here. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. Well, in the meantime, I went to a political rally, and I had done some work for the senator from Tennessee while I was in college. And I went to some party in Nashville and was walking back with the senator and other people in his entourage and was having a little conversation. Well, I, I knew I was going to New York, and so I said, you know, I'm I'm moving to New York to work with McGraw-Hill, but I really want to stay involved in, in politics. And I said, I would really like to volunteer for Bobby Kennedy, who was the senator from New York at that time. I said, I wonder if you could give me a nice recommendation. And he turned to me and he said, but I thought you were going to help me in my campaign. And I said, well, I'd really love to do that, but I have to earn a living. And he said, well, what if I paid you? And I was so young and naive at the time, I never <laughs> said, oh, well, how much are we talking about here? I just said yes, because to me that was something I really, really, really wanted to do. I had actually made a study of political campaigns, including Bobby Kennedy's. I was fascinated by campaigning. So I just said yes, and as soon as I graduated, which was in March, I graduated early, I went directly into a senatorial campaign, and I traveled the whole state of Tennessee by myself organizing colleges. And I guess they figured, what harm could it do? (laughs) They weren't paying me too much, and they didn't, I don't think they expected too much. But I ended up doing an amazing job organizing the colleges, people on the college campus, and turning that over to the leaders in those areas to follow up with. And then for two months, I traveled with a senator's wife. So it unfortunately, in that particular case, Tennessee is a, has very interesting politics. You can cross over in the primaries. So the Republicans had formed a strategy to cross over in the primaries and vote for the senator's opponent and then, and then vote for the Republican candidate in the general election. That's exactly what happened. They defeated the senator, and then they voted, and that what became Howard Baker's first term in office. So I went to Washington to complete or finish out the senator's term. Well, in Washington, all the people who had been on the staff were just leaving as fast as they could and scrambled to get jobs with a more permanent person. And I, again, I was somewhat naive and also totally enthralled with the work that I got to do because I got to do the work that was left over that these people weren't doing because they were looking for new jobs which meant I got to act as a press secretary. And it happened that I was quite good in this area, and I got to do a lot of interesting things. So it's interesting. I really didn't, quote, pitch myself for this job, but that's how it came about. And I loved everything that I did. I'm really glad that I did it. And I ended up crossing the aisle working for a newly elected Republican congressman from Georgia because Part of my goal was still to get to Atlanta, and that ended up happening. The thing is this, Pat. Um, 
you did pitch yourself in a way that wasn't a direct pitch. Another right, and if I had been smart, I would have done it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but, I think, but I think that you were very clever. In other words, it's clear from the women that were in your life as a child that you learned to speak up and that you just told it how it was. This is what you were planning to do. And I think you were so direct and to the point, he probably was sort of charmed by it and decided that he couldn't afford to lose you. And the fact that you didn't, I think, discuss the money at that young age is kind of interesting. I think that it wasn't just that perhaps you were flattered and maybe naive, but I think you must have experienced, you felt some passion in the sense that this was going to be something special for you to do and an opportunity to set the standard. Yes, and also, you know, for my, I guess, um, having to analyze why did you do it that way, I would say I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do, and I wanted to take, take advantage of it, and I simply trusted that the universe would make it turn out all right. And basically that's what happened. It did turn out. So again, we are propelled by our passion, and here you are, propelled. Okay, at the ripe old age of 25, you established an advertising agency in Atlanta. Tell us how this came about. (laughs) Well, I went from working uh, with the congressman. I was transferred down to Atlanta, exactly what I wanted to have happen. And then I um, also left the congressman's office and went to work for a large regional advertising and public relations firm. And I found out quickly, I just made it my job to learn everything that I could at the agency, even though when women were hired, they were hired as secretaries. When young men were hired, they were hired as junior account executives. And they were really mentored. Women were not. I I just took it upon myself to go around and get my own self-mentored, and I learned from every single department head at the agency. Uh, I actually, as I mentioned, I thought I was quite good in the area of public relations. I still believe that's my forte. And I could see that if I had a little more authority, I could actually do quite well for that agency. So I went to one of the heads of the agency, and I said, you know, if I have a little more authority, I really believe... I could help you build the strongest public relations firm in the South. And his answer was, well, your boss has been here longer and he has a family, so maybe you should look for another job. Well, that wasn't exactly the answer I was expecting, needless to say, but it did push me into looking at, well, what's next? And I really thought if I simply went out and looked for another job, it would have a similar ending, and I wanted something better. So... After having a nightmare one night, a nightmare I'll never forget, I simply sat up in bed and I thought, if I don't come up with a solution for whatever it is, I will not get to sleep again. And it occurred to me that what was really bothering me was not having this answer about what to do next. And I said, well, you know, maybe I should just go on my own. And even if it fails, people will say, well, you know, she has some gumption here. Maybe we ought to give her a bigger job. And that's really what happened. I simply thought, I'm going to do it because it's the only way to get a better job. And I went out on my own, and at the same time, I um, took on a new roommate um, at a new apartment, and I told her, I said, I'm really not sure how this is going to turn out. Are you sure that you're willing to take this chance? She said, I believe that it's going to work out. And sure enough, it did. Just one good thing happened after the next. Let me also ask you, in terms of being an entrepreneur because obviously at age 25 you became an entrepreneur did you at that point understand that you in terms of your personality and skills and attitude and fitting in and all of that that's associated with being independent and fast moving and creative Did you say to yourself, 
I really don't over the long term want to be an employee. What do you think looking back? Oh, I I think I was really clear that I had already met uh, all the corporate structure that I needed, that it was not friendly to women, and that if I ever wanted to accomplish anything, it was going to be extremely difficult for me to do it in a corporate setting of any kind, even though that was like a regional advertising agency, very creative, and probably had more opportunity than other kinds of structured organizations. I began to see that I knew... Uh, I had confidence in my own ability, and the only way I was really going to get to apply that was to do it on my own. And the other thing I found out, well, there were several things that happened in my life in a very short period of time. I also had, uh, unfortunately, met someone who put me deeply in debt, and I ended up, in order to get out of debt while I was working at the agency, I had to also take on two additional jobs downsized by moving into a room in a house and working, working, working. And what I discovered is I was able to get out of that deep debt in one year, and I said to myself, if I can do that for someone else, I can do that for me. If I can work that hard to get that done, I can do that for me. And I looked at the job that I had, and I said, if I can come up with the ideas, better ideas than the people around me, but I don't get a chance to present them, I at least want a chance to to present my own ideas and rise or fall on the basis of my ability to put it out myself. And I did think those things, and I did do that. And I was not afraid to work hard. In fact, I've never been afraid to work hard. I actually enjoy it. I worked very hard. I'll have to say kind of in the beginning, I didn't work as hard as I probably could have. In fact, someone that I met who became another mentor said, you are not working hard enough. You must do this and you must do that. And I and I did. I got my little wet noodle out and beat myself up and said, you're right, I need to work harder. And from that point on, I worked a lot. I worked very hard. And I, I approached it like, you know, perhaps I am not as old as other people. Perhaps a lot of the men-owned companies will not consider me a good option. But someone out there is going to say yes and I'm going to knock on enough doors till I find the people who believe in me and believe in my talent, and I will work hard to give them value. And I think using your language, Arlene, it would be I will find the right fit. I will knock on the doors till I find the right fit. Absolutely. I want to, again, touch upon the women that influenced you early in your life. They were women who were highly independent. Am I correct, Pat? I, I would certainly uh, style the people I, I knew like that. My grandmother, as I, on my mother's side, as I mentioned, who had lost her husband in the, in the deep depths of the Depression in South Carolina that had nearly no industry, no good ways for people to go out and get a job of any kind whatsoever. There just weren't jobs. And he also had left my grandmother with a general store that was failing. And so my grandmother had to deal with the fact that the the company, the the store was going to fail, and somehow she had to support six children. She did, I think, four to six jobs. She had a boarding house. She took in laundry. She did everything. And the kids that were older also did anything they could do. Everyone contributed to a good outcome, and they had a good outcome. Outcome, but she had to be resourceful way beyond what she was accustomed to doing, and I have always admired that. My mother, um, I think my mother was born somewhat independent anyway, but she had become a nurse, and when she married my father, and I don't think that she really thought she'd ever really have to practice nursing very long. But she did, and she and it was her calling. And so that worked out really well for her, and I saw how she managed as a single mom. When I really got to know the, the strong women on my father's side, I had a great aunt that I just still adore. Her name was Aunt May. She was very much like an Auntie Mame. She had left home when she was 15 to become an underwear model 
in New York City at the turn of the century. <laughs> An underwear model. That's terrific. I know. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine well, what, what her family thought? This? What year was Approximately what year was this when she became an underwear model? I think it was around 1915. 1915. 1915. My God, it must really have been early shocking. Early. I know. It was really shocking. I, and she was always, it was so funny, as I got to know her when I was uh, uh, a young girl, she was a very conservative lady. She she would be what you would call now an arch conservative. And I'm thinking, wow, what an interesting beginning for someone who is such an arch conservative. <laughs> and then my Aunt Gladdy was really the matriarch of the family. She held the family together. She she you know, she was concerned about everyone. I mean, she had what most people I think at that time would consider a somewhat normal job. Although it was above par, she was like an executive secretary uh, for a company that did oil drilling, I think. But she had a, a daily job, but she did so much more than that for her friends and her family. She just held things together. And she was just a great, great, great lady and um, someone I still very much admire. After the advertising agency, um, tell us what happened. I, I believe that you did not sell the agency, Pat. Tell us what happened. Well, I, as I said, I worked really hard. I I was the the first woman to start an agency alone, and it wasn't just an advertising agency. Actually, I started to really do public relations, but the people who helped me said, you can't just do that. You have to do advertising well. Um, it was uh, it was an interesting beginning, but for, almost immediately I started attracting people that I needed I attracted the number one person in media in the South. This was a man who was the media planner and and buyer for BBDNO in New York, and they sent him to Atlanta when they bought a regional agency there. So they he planned and bought, for instance, all of Delta, Chevron, Dodge, et cetera. And because he bought so much media, all the media were at his feet. And when he began teaching me, he showed me how to plan, buy, and negotiate, uh, things I would never have learned otherwise. And because of his influence, I was offered some of the best media available. Now, actually, when I left, before I met him, the very, very first job I ever got was to handle all the public relations for the Outdoor Association, and I worked directly with Ted Turner. And that began a long working relationship with Ted Turner, the outdoor company that he owned, and eventually Channel 17, the Superstation, and CNN, et cetera. And he also owned the, the Braves, and I bought the Braves and the Hawks, and I worked with some wonderful people, Skip Carey, who is the voice of the Braves, and uh, just we did us, a lot of fun us, things. Tell us about Ted Turner. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I... Um, I think everybody would admit that he has a personality. Personally, he has a personality that is a little stereotypical of a male chauvinist in the South. But on a business level, he's one of the brightest, most innovative people of our time, and I really, really admire him in business. In fact, I've learned a lot from him when he when he started Channel 17, and then. He met the gentleman from Texas who talked him into creating it as a superstation. Well, he almost didn't make it. There were two UHF stations. He had one of them, and he had basically put everything up to make that work. The outdoor company, I think he had several radio stations at the time, there, and there was not enough advertising dollars altogether to keep both of those UHF stations alive. So it came down to a very big buy that my mentor was going to make. He ended up he ended up making the choice of Channel 17, and the other station went black. In other words, it went off the air. If it had been otherwise, you might not know about Ted Turner today. And he went from there to create the Superstation and then CNN. And, and everything he did, really, he did in spite of any public um, support. Uh, from the advertising community, at least, and everybody would like tee-hee-hee behind his back. And, in fact, when he started CNN, people used to tease and say, oh, yeah, Chicken Noodle Network. 
And he worked as hard as I know I worked to, to, to do the things that he launched. In fact, the stories are that he brought a cot and slept in his office for days and days and days and even months to get CNN off the ground. And he pulled in some of the brightest people, and he always strongly supported his people. So there's a lot that I learned from him just by being close enough to see what he did and really caring what he did. So I... And most recently, I was in Denver during the Democratic National Convention, and the city of Denver put on this wonderful forum about philanthropy, and he was one of the panelists. And he, they asked him, well, why did you decide or how did you become a philanthropist? And he said, it wasn't until I made a lot of money. He said, you know, at one point I made a lot of money so quickly I had to do something. I had to learn. And I thought that was one of the most honest answers I've ever heard anyone give. It's true. You know, he had always made money. But when CNN became really successful, he made a lot of money. And that, and he had to really sit down and determine what was going to happen next. And I think that was, in a sense, maybe a turning point even for him. Although I think he always had a very worldly point of view, uh, one that wants the world to turn out well. But he really took a deep look at what what the world needed and how best to use his resources. And he made a comment that was actually on YouTube, I think, some sometime in the past. And he said, I wish I had not listened to other people and combined with uh, Time Warner. He said, that was the worst decision I ever made in my life. He said, because of that, I lost billions of dollars money that I had planned to do wonderful things for in the world and now will not be able to do those. In other words, there's no more time left in my clock to be able to go back and make up that lost money that will allow me to do things in the world I'd really like to do. Things like that are very influential to me. I look at what people like Ted Turner have done and and contributed in the world. And I think in many ways, he has a sense of being of service in a larger sense, and I think that that's something that most of us really need to get in touch with. But I think that your next venture, I think, in essence, you are like Ted Turner, and that is in 1996 you set up Women's Radio. I know that some years passed in between the agency and women's radio. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that and then um, your baby, women's radio, and how, in essence, uh, I think you share something very important with Ted Turner in that you really want to influence the world with women's radio. Well, I think the two things I might have in common with his experience is that I did start out with a vision, and the vision for women's radio and, and the other products, the other media that we, we've created, is to give women a larger voice over a greater geographic area so that we can help to bring a greater balance to the universe. And in doing that, everything, every decision that we make is weighed against that mission. And from that mission, we've begun women's radio, womenscalendar.org. Now we're launching the WR channel, and we also created a wonderful, wonderful media tool that thousands of people around the world are now using called Audio Acrobat. It's our registered trademark. And there were years and years and years where even my husband made comments like, well, I just don't see what you're doing. I just don't really understand where you're going with this. I don't understand what you're trying to create. And it's pretty difficult to have the vision yourself but not be able to either articulate it well enough or demonstrate what you're doing well enough to even get a buy-in from your husband. But eventually, guess what? It happened anyway. And not only did he buy in, but he he acts as my partner now, and we couldn't do the things we do without his efforts. And it's because of his efforts that we now have Audio Acrobat and many other things that we're doing. So... Part of what I learned from Ted Turner is do whatever it takes, if you really believe in your vision, to sustain yourself until that buy comes in, until that one thing happens that puts you over the top. 
in one case for him, it was that one buy that kept Channel 17 alive. In another case, he had to go to Nashville. Uh, as I understand the story, he went to Nashville and went to a franchise show and got the rights for lots of products, came back, created television commercials for them, and sold them directly, and that helped sustain Channel 17 until he got the advertising buys he needed to really put it over the top. And I believe, I, I may be wrong, but I believe that that was actually the beginning of direct sales television, direct response TV. And and that taught, that has taught me a lot. It, it shows you that you you sometimes need to look for and create new models if you want to just do what you think you came here to do. And sometimes in the process of doing that, you create a whole new industry that you had no idea about. And there Now we have direct response TV. And um, so in what we're doing, I, I think the new thing that we're doing is the WR channel. We're about to launch this new syndication of radio online. And we're going to be able to give that whole channel out for free and be able to give our host and the people who are listening a much, much, much larger voice. We're doing what I think several innovative things. Because of this tool, Audio Acrobat, we're able to give a dedicated host line now to the women in the Senate and the women in the Congress. And I'm talking to them every day right now so that now people can actually hear directly from these women who want to have this larger voice about what's really happening on those committees and in those hearings and what those laws are, things that we get regurgitated basically through the big media in a way that we really don't know or understand or have any kind of feeling that we can have any feedback or in, impact uh, in our own government. So I'm very, very excited about that. Well, I know you had an epiphany um, before you founded Women's Radio. Can you share that with us? Well, I think it came from a desire uh, to really add something unique while I was here on the planet, to really be of service. There's that word again. And I think people have to have a strong desire to find out what that gift is that you alone came to give. I certainly had it. I had already tried doing the agency thing, and I really felt like, oh, well, there are a lot of people doing advertising agencies. There are a lot of people doing PR firms. I can't can't imagine what I could do that would be different, unique, special, and really worthwhile just to stay in that industry, which, frankly, I didn't even really enjoy that much. So now I loved working with my clients. I love the creative aspects of that. But I did not really feel like I was making a contribution. So I kept asking myself, you know, what is it? What is it? What is it? And it took quite a long time. You would think if you ask, you get it right away, but it isn't always true. Well, it and took many years from what you had told years. me. Yeah, it took, I would say, almost 20 years after I began really asking that question to get the answer. But it came in such a unique way. I was uh, working with a friend who was learning about a new strategy or technique called holodynamics, and she said, would you be willing to be my, my guinea pig? I'm going to work. I'm going to see how this works. I said, yeah, I love doing things like that. So we got together, and she did what a lot of people might describe as guided meditation. And as soon as she began doing that, I had an inner picture or vision of my meditation teacher. And, as, and we were sitting down in a garden. And... As we sat down, she began to talk with me, and I could tell that she was giving me information. So I asked Linda, I said, do you have any paper with you? And she said, yes. I said, I'd like you to write down everything I say. And she said, I'll be glad to do that. So as my meditation teacher was speaking to me in this vision, I verbalized that, and Linda wrote it down. And at the end of an hour, Linda had taken down 12 pages of notes. And that became my direction for what I was to do, which was to give women this larger voice. And the reason why, so that the, the whole world could enjoy the, the wonderful things that were available to us that could not happen until we did, we were able to set up these communication bridges 
around the world. Now, ultimately, this isn't just for women, but because women have been so enculturated not to speak up, it was first important to give women this larger voice and then to help affect dialogue between men and women at all levels. So that is really the process that we're in right now. Sometimes I feel like it's taking so much longer than I ever, ever imagined. But I, I was telling uh, David tonight, David is my husband and partner, I said, you know, I'm really beginning to feel like we're about to clear the top of the second mountain range and be able to get on our sleds and come down on the other side. It's going to be so much fun. And I really do feel that way. So in spite of the economy, in spite of everything, every single thing that we're doing now is is has a reason and has a purpose and is beginning to show up. In fact, just before I got on this call tonight, I called a very good friend of mine in Washington who's the head of a not-for-profit organization called the International Women's Democracy Center. And she said, oh, Pat, we're in deep trouble. I said, what in the world? She said, well, you heard about Madoff. And I said, well, I certainly did. And she said, well, the, the organization that funded us and many, many other organizations has just gone out of business because they put all their money with him. I said, this is not a good situation. She said, no, it's not. And we're hard at work trying to figure out how to make up for those dollars. She said, I've, I don't think I've ever been this panicked. I'm working really hard. And so I shared with her some ideas about how she could use Audio Acrobat to create products, that audio products and video products that people and organizations really want and need from her own expertise. She said, I got it, I'm on it. So I feel really good that the little tool that we created so that women could create radio with us is, is now going to be used by many organizations to help put out what they do best and be able to make money to keep their doors open. I'm really, really excited about that. Who would have thought? Well, I think what is important about what you're saying is that you understand your product and you saw an application for it. And not everybody really understands their product the way you do, and I think that's important. Well, also, I'm going to say this again. I think it's this huge desire to be of service. I really want Barbara's organization to go for it because they're doing enormous great work in the universe. So it's kind of like I turn around and look in my little basket and say, what do I have here that I can offer you Your that tool will chest. be of service? My little tool chest. Tool chest. Your little tool <laughs> chest yes. in, a, in, a, in a bright pink box. Yes, indeed. Speaking up is your motto and also the key component of my right fit method. Many people hesitate to speak up because they fear rejection. What would you advise? Well, look at the alternative. What will happen if you don't speak up? Nothing. You, you can, uh, I'll tell people, you have a choice. You can do something or you can do nothing. If you do nothing, the outcome is assured. If you do something, maybe the outcome isn't assured, but it won't be what happens if you do nothing. So why not do something? And I, and I think that is so very true about people speaking up. They get to a place where they see something that's an injustice or they see that they have certain knowledge, but they just don't have the self-confidence to speak up because they're afraid somebody say, oh, that won't work. Or, But look at Ted Turner. My goodness, look out. And he knew people were talking about him behind his back, but he saw something they didn't see. And he knew that he saw something they didn't see. So he, all he could do was keep on moving and, and keep on doing what he was doing. And I think when you have certain knowledge and you withhold it, you just hurt yourself and everyone around you, your family, your community, everyone. And I think that this is a point in time when everyone must speak up. I mean, we have learned our lessons, haven't we? that if we just uh, send people off to Congress and we say, dust our little hands and say, okay, well, I did my job, I voted, now back to work, and we let them do whatever they want to over there, we're not happy with the outcome. Well, that goes back to not setting the standards for them in terms of performing um, at a high level and also not holding them accountable, which oh, is totally. key. Both. And speaking of holding people accountable, 
How do you do that? By speaking up, saying this is not acceptable behavior. You, we, I will not tolerate this. If you vote for this, I will go to work, and I will let people know that what you've done is unacceptable. People have to be willing to write, to call, to take action. People must do what they know is right. And maybe they, they disagree um, totally with maybe their neighbor who thinks that's, that person took the right action. But if they say nothing and they do nothing, then they have no reason to complain. You know, if they end up being slaves and all their freedoms taken away, maybe they'll do something then. It, it's really, it's, it's like at this point, we're at a point in history where we're either going to go backwards. I think we already have gone backwards, about as far as we can go backwards, unless we just fall directly into the pit. Or we have to pull it together, reach down and find our intestinal fortitude, and go forward. And going forward means you must take some action. It really starts with what you think and then what you say. You must speak up. You must. And, and, And also in a nice way. I mean, Arlene, you and I talked about this. When I came to a point where I realized I had to speak up, the only way I could do it was by getting angry. And then I figured out, well, that's not going to always get me what I want. I'm going to have to learn to say what I think and feel without getting angry. Besides, it's not going to be very good on my health. So, But I, I had a talk with myself, and I said, if that's the only way you can get it out initially, whatever it takes, Pat, get it out. You just cannot sit on it any longer. Because I was raised in a culture that said that women and children should be seen and not heard. It was very hard for me to unlearn that and learn how to speak up. But but you taught yourself to do that. Yeah. Well, I was lucky in that my dad was not good at speaking up, but he kept encouraging me at an early age to speak up. So he well, was and successful. that gave you confidence that you could because your dad said you could. Absolutely. and basically reinforced the speaking up that this was something good to do. Right. And, you know, if you don't speak up, how will anybody know if you're the right fit or not? Well, clearly... Maybe you're not going to be the right fit. You're not looking to be the right fit for every person. You're just looking to be the right fit for the right people in your life. Absolutely. So Um, if you don't speak up, how will anybody know who you are? Well, in order to figure out whether you are the right fit... You have to speak up. You don't have a choice because you have to ask all kinds of questions. You have to pick, pitch, and probe. And if you don't <laughs> do that, then you can't be successful. Absolutely. So now, looking back on your career, is there anything you would have done differently? Yes, I wouldn't have whined around so much when uh, my first um, venture really came to a close. I... Uh, my first agency ended up specializing in real estate. Um, when real estate came to the first bust <laughs> before the current one, all my clients seemed to dry up. There was more going on at that time, but I worked just—I worked so hard to keep it moving along, uh, much longer than I would do now. But then, after it failed, I had put so much into it that I grieved for it way too long. And I probably wouldn't grieve that long anymore. I would have given myself a short period of time, dusted myself off, and gone right back to work. But instead, I went, in in a sense, in another direction, which also was, ended up being very valuable for me. And that was to really find find myself, find my inner self. And so in the long run, it all worked out uh, fairly well. But for the most part, and I've heard other women say this too, just don't, give yourself enough time to grieve when something fails. It's just a learning experience. Dust yourself off because now you're twice as smart as you were before. You know what doesn't work. And go back and do it better. Well, you have an amazing fortitude. I think a lot of people take things personally rather than looking at the situation objectively. Well, and I, I think I you are outstanding personally. at that, Pat. Well, thanks. I think I think you give me too much credit. I, I even get feedback from my husband that I take a lot of things way too personally. But I take things seriously. I know that. And I put a lot of energy into things. So I think you do have to care. Uh, 
but you you shouldn't care so much that you can't hold on to what the real vision is. I think that's true. You, you can't say, oh, I'm so in love with him when he's beating you. You should be leaving, you know. Right. Kind of <laughs> well, that gets us to your wonderful husband, David, who Indeed. is your right fit husband. My definitely is, right fit husband. Right. What is your blueprint of the right fit husband? And why have you kept David around for so long, Pat? <laughs> well, I... I really, and I say this to David often, I think God put us together, but even God led me to be more conscious about how I selected my relationships. And I'm not sure where I got this. I know someone shared this with me. I'd like to give them credit, but I can't quite remember who it was. And they said, why don't you make out a list of every single detail that you want in a relationship, whether it's physical appearance or how they think or what their value system is, um, just every single little thing. And so I did that. I sat down and I wrote something like six pages of detailed notes about every single thing I wanted in a relationship. And then I gave myself and the universe permission to allow people to come and go if they didn't meet the criteria. I also gave myself permission to find out if I had things on the list that I didn't really think were that important, I could take them off. Or if I discovered things that I thought were really important, I could add them. And I did this for about six months. And within six months, I met David. And I had let two or three people come and go during that time period. And and then David was the only person I ever allowed to see that list. And he read through the list and he said, well... I thought this was very astute on his part. He said, the only thing that I really see on your list that I don't think I have is I don't have blonde hair and blue eyes. I said, I don't think I'm going to throw you back for the blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> well, obviously, everything that you wrote, you wrote down, all the criteria were not equally weighted. So the 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 eye color and the hair were not as important, I guess, as what you thought they might be. Right. And it, But everything else was there. And I think one of the things I learned from that process is I got really clear about what I really wanted and needed in a relationship. And interestingly enough, it it gave him an opportunity to see what was valuable to me. And there are so many of the things on that list that we still feel very strongly about, you know, trust and and the things that we enjoy doing together and uh, and loyalty and a lot of things that we that carry over into our business. So we, when we and and we're we're not perfect. We're just like every other couple. We, you know, we we don't always get along 100%. Oh my goodness! And there have been times when we think it wasn't going to last. It, we weren't going to make it through, but we have. And and on July the first will be our 25th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you very much. Ahead of time, your first wish for the for the for the next anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you are passionate about helping women. What would you like to say to our women listeners? Well, I think you pointed this out, and I think uh, the people who are listening to you are definitely looking for the right fit, or they are confirming that this is a right method to use, and and they are correct. Your right fit method is a correct method or strategy to use. And they're, they're looking for that because they have a desire in their own life to give what they've come to give. And I want to encourage them, uh, if you don't know what it is, keep on, you know, definitely looking at that, looking at your heart, looking at what you really, really love to do. If you're not already doing it, and if you're doing it, well, reaffirm to yourself that you're on the right path. And then be persistent. Be persistent. Be persistent. It is it is the thing that will get you there. Well, I think perseverance is something that isn't talked about enough, Pat. I don't think we teach people at an early age or teach children at an early age the need to be persevering. I totally agree with you, and I think that it's actually discouraged in our educational system. You know, the the educational system is set up to sit down and shut up and listen and follow my rules. It's also 
set up so it doesn't even allow children to focus on any one project for any period of time to have a particular outcome. It's like 20 minutes, move on, 20 minutes, move on. And I don't think that that really develops that particular muscle. Uh, we were very fortunate. We had one daughter, and we homeschooled her. I realized that she just didn't learn the way other people learn. She was what one might call a divergent learner. So she would come to me from time to time and say, you know, Mom, I'd really like to write a play. Would that be all right? And I said, absolutely. And I remember this one time that happened, and she took two weeks, and she intuitively knew what resources she needed to go get. She did. If I had to give a course on how to do it, like research, um, write out your plan, follow through, make course, she did all of that. And she wrote out a play. She listened to tapes and things to get ideas. And, and she ended up putting on a play for a community of over 300 people she recruited all of the actors. She recruited adults to help her with scenery and and timing. How and old everything. was she at that time, Pat? She was 12 at that time. Oh, she had my. done this once before when she was younger, too. And it was because she had the freedom to do that, the encouragement to do that, that she learned to do a project and stick with it until she got the results she wanted. I don't think most kids get that opportunity. I'll, that's just my point of view. So I agree with that. And then she went off to college. Did, did you homeschool her through high school as well? No. We. She actually decided that she wanted to go to quote regular school in seventh grade, and okay. that was a whole that was a whole other learning experience. I probably would have discouraged her looking back because in seventh and eighth grade those kids come from a different kind of culture. They basically is like Lord of the Flies. They they have little packs and gangs, and they are very mean to each other. I think they don't learn how to be nice to each other until maybe high school. But she managed to live through that and be a much stronger individual because of it. She ended up going to an alternative high school, even though she made straight A's uh, during the time she was in 7th and 8th grade. Uh, the major high schools wouldn't accept her. We've never quite figured that out, but it was it was fortuitous because she ended up going to an alternative high school. We learned about the system. This was in California. And so we helped her or guided her to look at an opportunity to go ahead and take college-level courses. She did, and she did very well. And because of that, she ended up being accepted uh, in, with honors into University of California, Berkeley, and UCLA. She chose Berkeley, and she graduated with honors from there. And a lot, a lot of it. So it. I think that all of that early training, as you pointed out from the very beginning, was very important for her. Now our men listeners, given that you're working so hard to help women, we don't want them to get frightened, Pat. <laughs> well, um, I've tried to say that in the long run, it's all about all of us having a lot of deep respect and love for each other so that we can have dialogue together and come out with much better solutions. I know a lot of men who already understand that and are very eager for the women to step up and have these conversations. I've been in conferences where the men spoke up and said, you know, I would support the women in my group if they would just speak up. I can't speak up for them. And I think that that's true. And I think that that's kind of where we are, generally speaking, that the more women speak up, the more men get to be who they really are. They get to explore their creative side. They also get to have real dialogue with wonderful, bright, um, creative women. And so much more can be done because they really, really learn to appreciate the differences and each other. Uh, women are really learning to appreciate the strength that men bring, and men are really beginning to understand and appreciate the strength and creativity that women bring. And with a combination of efforts, I think we can move further faster. So I want to encourage the men to hang in there and to... And not to be terrified of the women that you're helping, right, Pat? I can't imagine why they would be terrified. <laughs> 
Where does the terror I'm, come I'm from? No, I'm, I'm teasing you in that um, you're building up a very powerful force on women's radio so that you are reaffirming and confirming uh, the self-confidence of women and encouraging them to speak up. Well, I love what Bella Epsick, she said. You know, she said, when women gain power, we won't treat you guys nearly as badly as you've treated us. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant. In but, fact, but I, the I truth even is, have... we don't think like that. We don't think about taking over. We don't think about we're, we're going to take over and push you out. Women just don't think like that. And men are beginning to learn that. And I think that coming, going forward into the future, it isn't about who's in power. It's really about figuring out what the right solutions are. And it isn't about how much ground you're going to gain. And if you have more toys than the other people, it's about making sure that everybody has what they need, everybody. And when everybody has what they need, this world will look a lot different. Well, I agree. Uh, when you come to L.A., which I hope you will do in the near future, I will share with you my Beller Abzug pin. It's a oh, pin. I would love but, to see it. Oh, yeah, it's a collectible. It's, it's really delightful looking with her big hat. Um, so I think you'll enjoy that. And, and she influenced me. I love to wear hats because she was so brave to, to wear hats all the time. Absolutely. In terms of uh, growing up, I had a different kind of upbringing. I was brought up to see men and women as basically one and the same. My father didn't differentiate. And so my brother and I were brought up the same way. We, we just looked at everybody as people. Rather than well, this is a man and this is a woman. Well, we so. had two different experiences. I was brought up in the South. Uh, when uh, dinner was over, the men went to the living room and the women went to the kitchen. And ah. I determined very early on that the men's conversation was much more interesting. So I remember hiding behind the big um, sofa chair and so I could listen to the men's conversation. And, in fact, I will have to say, I'll have to admit, that I really didn't hold women in very high esteem until I grew up and had a lot more learning experiences. So well, I grew up on the East Coast in the Boston area, so it was definitely a different uh, culture. It was. Mm-hmm. Well, Pat, I have to say it's absolutely been delightful chatting today. You are a woman who knows how to win without competing. Thank you so much for joining me. I, well, hope you, I hope you'll come back soon. Arlene, it's been a tremendous pleasure to be here and to know you. I am so happy that life brought us together. I am in great admiration of your Right Fit Method, and I want to recommend it to anyone who's listening. Well, thank you, Pat, and I really wish you much success in terms of the expansion of women's radio. And when you do join us again, I really would like you to share the latest about what's happening. I can't wait. And one of the things I want to share is that you're going to be a host at Women's Radio. We're really looking forward to your being a part of that. Well, thank you. I'm very excited about doing that myself, and I think it's going to be really a, a memorable experience. And I hope to be working with you for many years. Indeed. And have a wonderful year this year, and may everyone listening have the most successful year they've enjoyed so far on the planet. Thank you so much, and I hope one day to meet David. Indeed. We'll have to make a trip down to L.A. and and have a good time together. Well, thank you so much, Pat, and again, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Absolutely. Please join me again next Wednesday, January 21st at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be Dr. Mark Kuzinitz, Senior Science Communication Advisor to an FDA Director. Mark will explain how he sets a standard against which no one can compete, which is the foundation for my right fit method. To contact me directly, and please do, call 310-441-5305 or email 
Dr. Barrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. That's D-R-Barrow, B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com. For the latest news, please check out my blog on Blog Talk Radio. Also, be sure to email me your career questions. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, and career coach one. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.